Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 20. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you will not find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm Jacob, little Israel. Do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. See, I'll make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them, the wind will pick them up, and a gale will blow them away. But you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and needy search for water, but there is none. Their tongues are parched with thirst. But I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will make rivers flow on barren heights and springs within the valleys. I will turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put in the desert the cedar of the acacia, the myrtle and the olive. I will set junipers in the wasteland, the fir and the cypress together, so that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this, that the Holy One of Israel has created it. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we are grateful for the firm foundation of your word, and we pray that your spirit would prepare us to stand upon it this morning. Father, I come this morning with my thoughts and my opinions, my axes to grind. I pray that you would remove me from the equation, that you would shut my mouth if it needs to be shut, that you would help people hear your true word as a message from you to your people. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, earlier this week, or maybe it was late last week, I uh, opened up an article from the Washington Post. It was dated back 2014, uh, but I think it's still relevant. And it spoke about America's most common fears. Uh, they're probably not going to come as any surprise to you. I think probably most of us share the same kind of fears. Number one was the fear of public speaking. And, you know, I'm up here. So I've, over the course of 15, 20 years, conquered that fear. It doesn't intimidate me to speak in public anymore. A fear number two was the fear of heights. And that's me back in college. Uh, that's Letchworth State Park, and that cliff was about 70 feet tall. Um, heights have never been a problem for me. I kind of enjoy heights. But number three is the one that got me. Uh, number three is spiders. I hate spiders. 
There is no live and let live when it comes to spiders. It's them or me. Uh, If my kids had any illusion that dad was a fearless superhero, it died the minute a spider ran across our living room floor. Now, my wife would tell you that she kills all the spiders in the house. That's a lie. I do kill them. It takes some mustering up of my courage because when I see a little spider over in the corner, this is actually what I'm envisioning right there, okay? Because those are the spiders that lived around my house in Florida. They're called banana spiders, and they would make these giant webs between trees, and me and my friends or my brother would be out playing in the woods, and you'd run through one of these webs, and you'd have spiders on your back. Now, their sting their, or their bite is really no worse than a bee sting, but they're just horrible. We used to hunt those things with our BB guns, okay? That was, I hate spiders. I don't know what you're afraid of. I don't know if any of those kind of ticked a box for you. But I do know we all have fears. And we have fears that are more substantial, more significant than heights and spiders. Two fears right now seem to dominate our mental space. Fears stemming from the virus and the pandemic and fears stemming from the upcoming election and the state of our nation. Each side of those fears, or each one of those fears, has a, an A side and a B side. Uh, when it comes to the virus, there are many of us who are fearful of what it would do to us if we caught COVID-19. And we're feel for, fearful for our health or the health of our loved ones. We don't want to be in the hospital. We don't want to die of COVID-19. On the flip side of that, there are many who fear not the virus directly, but what the virus is doing to the economy or to their business or to their job or to their kids' kind of mental well-being as they're isolated from friends and not in school. But it's fear stemming from the virus. The same thing is true about the upcoming election. There are those who fear what will happen to our nation if this president is elected to four more years. And on the flip side, there are people who are fearful of what will happen if power is handed over to the other party. Uh, Our fears are nuanced, right? We're living in a different time than people before us. We're in a different space than people who live in other parts of the world. But fear is common to everybody. But as believers who know God, we do not have to live in fear. In fact, we are commanded not to live in fear. That's different than having fears. Everybody has fears. But when we give those fears power over us, and we live in slavery to these fears— We're, in essence, not living in faith. The most frequent command in Scripture is fear not. This morning, my sermon kind of falls into two parts, comfort and confrontation. The Word of God comes through the prophet Isaiah to a people living in Judah at the time who had multiple reasons to fear. 
there was all kinds of political strife and turmoil and unsettledness in Isaiah's time. At the beginning of his ministry, one of Judah's best kings, King Uzziah, had died. And it brought to end 50 years of his reign, 50 years of relative stability and good in Judah. And after him, there was a succession, succession of good kings and bad kings, kind of all mixed together. There was a quasi-civil war during his reign, or during uh, Isaiah's time of ministry, where the southern kingdom, Judah, was at war with their northern brothers, Israel. And outside of the internal turmoil, there was plenty of threats outside as well, external threats. Judah did not live alone in the world. There was a new power in the block, a new power in the block, Assyria was rising to power. And they swept in through Israel, conquering towns, destroying cities, taking and conquering the people and taking them into exile as captives. And they didn't just stay in the northern kingdom of Israel. The Assyrian armies came down into the south and destroyed cities and destroyed towns and came all the way up to the walls of Jerusalem, the city that represented God's presence with his people. And Sennacherib, that's the Assyrian king, his armies laid siege to Jerusalem. In that instance, God miraculously delivered Judah and Jerusalem from the Assyrian powers. But they weren't the only powers on the block either. Babylon was rising, and King Hezekiah did something incredibly foolish. He welcomed envoys from Babylon and gave them a grand tour of the city, including the palace and the treasury of the temple. And Isaiah says that treasury gold that you were so proud of, that is going to be taken to Babylon, as will your sons and daughters. Isaiah is writing to people who have a lot to fear, but the second half of the book, including the chapter that we just read, was directed to bring comfort to God's people as they were facing these fears. And God commands them, do not be afraid. This isn't some kind of bare command, like when I tell my kids what to do and then I say, because I said so. Uh, uh, No, God says, do not be afraid, and he grounds that command in his very character. He says, do not be afraid. Remember who I am. Take comfort in that. When we need comfort, That's where we're supposed to turn, to God. Not to dashboard numbers and positivity rates or polling data. Our comfort comes from God. First, God reminds us that he is faithful to his people. In verse 8 and verse 9, he emphasizes the fact that they are his chosen people. From all the ends of the earth, he has set his affections on Israel. They are the descendants of Abraham, who he says, he was my friend. You are my precious possession. I will not reject you. The Apostle Paul picks up on this theme in Romans chapter 8. He says, we haven't received a spirit of slavery 
to fall back into fear, but the spirit of adoption as sons, so we can cry, Abba, Father. If God hasn't rejected his friends or the descendants of his friends, he certainly will not reject us, his sons and daughters. God is faithful. Second, God promises to deliver us from our fears. Verse 11 and 12, he says, look at your enemies. They've been made nothing. Scan the horizon. Search for those who oppose you. They've been vanquished. You can't find them. Now this one needs to be unpacked a little bit. We have to be careful here. You have to understand that these people that he's writing to are about to go into exile, and he's pointing them ahead. Take a long vision. There will be a time where you will be delivered from your enemies. It's not right now, but it's coming. For the people of God in Israel and Judah, that in part meant a return from exile, coming back to the promised land and resettling, rebuilding. But that was only a partial fulfillment. Isaiah points them even further ahead to something he calls the new heavens and the new earth, where neighboring empires don't threaten, where there is no struggle, no strife, no disease, no death, no crying, no mourning. All those things are vanquished. They are made nothing. God delivers us from our fears. Third, we also are meant to take comfort in God's strength. God says, I will strengthen you from this unmatched, unexhaustible, inexhaustible store of power. I give my power to you. You don't have enough strength to stand on your own. He refers to Jacob in verse 14 as you worm Jacob. And oh, you little Israel. Not really words of encouragement if you're trying to build someone up to muster their own courage and strength. But that's not what God is doing. He's saying, I know you're small. And I will give you the strength. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. I myself will help you. Fourth, we're called to remember and take comfort in the fact that God is our reliable provider. In verses 17 to 20, he says, I see the poor and the needy. I see their thirst. Their tongues are clinging to the roof of their mouth because they're parched. I see that. I know their need. And I will make springs burst forth. Rivers will run. I will turn the vast wasteland into pools of water for them. I know what they need, and I will provide. Jesus famously, beautifully picks up on this in Matthew chapter 6, right? Do not be anxious about anything. Your heavenly Father knows what you need. He's clothed the lilies of the field. He feeds the birds of the air. How much more will he also care for you? He is our provider. And finally, and maybe even most importantly, especially now as we're struggling with isolation and loneliness, we take comfort in the fact that God is always present. 
He's always with us. In verse 10, he says, I am with you. I am your God. Verse 13, I am the Lord who takes you by the right hand. I'm present. I'm with you. Incredibly, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels or demons or past or present or future or heights or depths, nothing in the created order can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He is present with us in love. And we can take comfort from that. From an earthly perspective, Judah had plenty to fear. But God says, do not fear, and grounds that command in his character. But let me ask you, are our fears greater than old Judah's fears? No. They're different, but they're not greater. Okay, well, has God changed? No. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So why then are we Christians so afraid? Let me move from comforting to confronting for a minute. We're in a series on the book of Revelation, which thankfully Bob didn't make me step into. But we've been going through these seven letters to the churches. Imagine what Jesus might say were he writing to the American church in 2020. I hope he'd find some positive to commend us for. I have an idea of some things he would critique. And I can almost hear Jesus saying, Church, I have seen your fear, and it is not becoming. Repent, therefore. Do not live in slavery to fear, but live in faith. Faith in the one who has overcome death and the grave. See, Scripture doesn't just call us to actively or to passively receive the comfort that God gives. Scripture calls us to actively fight against fear with the truth of who God is. Now, I want to be incredibly careful and precise here because so often I'm not, and so often we hear what we want to hear. I remember after a connection sermon one time, someone coming up to me and saying, I am so glad that you called out those Christians who shop at Walmart. And I thought, I did not say that. <laughs> you, uh, you fell asleep and were dreaming. I couldn't go home if I called out people who shop at Walmart because that's like my wife's favorite store. I want to be careful because I am not saying wearing a mask is living in fear. I am absolutely not saying voting for this candidate or that candidate is living in fear. I am not saying Sending your kids to school or not sending your kids to school is living in fear or living in... I'm not concerned about those actions. Many of them are very prudent. I am concerned with the state of our mind 
in the state of our hearts. Uh, on election Tuesday, two people could go into a voting booth and pull the same lever. I guess we don't pull levers anymore, but you get the picture. And one could be voting in faith and the other in fear. It's not about what you're doing. It's about the state of your heart as you're doing it. And we're doing so much because we're compelled by our fear. Fear does stuff to us. Physically, mentally, emotionally. Acute fear. You know, when you walk around a corner and there's a creepy clown guy standing there. Acute fear, that kind of startle, gives you a rush of adrenaline. It makes you ready to fight or flight. That's not the kind of fear we're dealing with. It's this slow, sneaking, indirect fear that is strangling our joy. And it's doing damage to our witness before a watching world. Because living in fear projects an incredibly small view of God to the world. I don't know how we got in this cycle, but we're in this cycle of laboring with a small vision of God. And I don't know exactly where our deficiency is. Do we not believe he's faithful? Do we not believe he's powerful or sovereign? Do we not believe he can? I don't know what our problem is, but we have this small vision of God which makes our fears look so much bigger than they are. And when we have a small vision of God, those fears seem huge. And so then we focus on our fears. And we spend hours watching cable news. And hours relentlessly scrolling through our Facebook feeds. And we're drawn to the negative. Social media, the algorithms... Elevate negative things because we engage more with negative things than we do positive things. It's meant to feed on our fears. And as we focus on our fears, God gets pushed to the edges, to the periphery. And I don't know about you, but things that are in my peripheral vision are blurry and out of focus. And God has become blurry and out of focus for us evangelicals. And the world is watching. This is very unflattering, but if we were a movie character, I'd say we're probably Bill Murray. And what about Bob? Shuffling through life with baby steps, slaves to fear, and frankly kind of annoying. We're called to be free, to be fearless, to be confident, to be bold, and use that confidence and use that boldness to go out and love and serve the world. But it is incredibly hard to love and to serve well when you view the other as threat, when you view the other as enemy, and that's what fear does. Living in fear turns others into threats and dangers. The other, the one who disagrees with you or who has a different fear than you do becomes a threat and an enemy. And it is really hard to love and to serve well when you're a slave to fear. 
Do not live in fear. I'm going to take the liberty and add a third short section called the cross. We talked about comfort and we've confronted. Let's talk about the cross. Charles Spurgeon said, wherever you start in the Bible, make a beeline to the cross and talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And I haven't made a beeline for the cross, but we have to get there because it's on the cross where Christ, our brother and our Lord, conquers our enemies and dispels our fears. Hebrews 2 says, he took on flesh because we're flesh so that Through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those from fear of death. They're no longer subject to lifelong slavery. He destroyed the power of death by dying and rising. He destroyed the power of sin and guilt and shame by taking it on himself and freeing us from that. He defanged the grave. It has no bite. I am not saying that our fears aren't real. I'm not even saying our worst fears won't come true. I'm saying that our fears, even if they are realized, are nothing but dust on the scale compared to the weight of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We might die. We will die. Uh, Augustine was right when he said, we shouldn't worry too much as Christians about the vehicle of our death. It's merely transporting us to our heavenly home. The economy might tank. That's okay. Our treasures are stored up in heaven. Our nation might crumble and descend into chaos. That would be hard to handle. But no nation is eternal. Only the unshakable kingdom of God. And through the work of Christ, we have been made citizens of this unshakable kingdom. If you do not know the fear-dispelling hope of Jesus Christ. I pray that you will find me or one of the other pastors after the service because we would love to introduce you to the freedom that comes in his name. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for the correction that comes from your word. It's easy for us to continue to labor under our own sins and our own fears and be slaves to them. But your word comes and commands us and frees us to live differently through Jesus Christ. We pray that you would do a work in our hearts. We know that you have commanded it. Now grant what you have commanded. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.